Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am thrilled to welcome Rachel Bronstein, managing policy attorney, and Naomi Young, staff attorney who oversees the Marital Debt Project for Her Justice. And Her Justice stands with women living in poverty in New York City by recruiting and mentoring volunteer lawyers to provide free legal help to address individual and systemic legal barriers. Rachel and Naomi, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I always like to start these teas with a very foundational question. And so I'll ask each of you to, to start on this as well. How do you define economic justice? Rachel, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. So uh, in our work on behalf of women living in poverty in New York City, um, I would define economic justice as the stability that women and their families need to uh, get what they need and maintain their um, basic essentials, but with the agency to make decisions around how they get to that stability, however they define it for themselves. Okay. And Naomi, what would your definition be? I, I love that. I think that encompasses, you know, the idea that uh, a world that has economic justice would allow people um, to live with dignity um, and security so they can make meaningful choices in their life, choices that they um, want to be able to make instead of choices between like paying the rent or paying for, for groceries. I think one of my favorite quotes about economic justice is um, from Brian Stevenson when he said uh, that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, the opposite of, of poverty um, is justice. So I also think of economic justice as what it's not and economic justice is, is not um, you know, a system where uh, poverty is, is considered like a necessary byproduct of the rest of us being allowed to be free to do whatever we want, um, and it's and it's definitely not philanthropy or charity. It's it's justice. We've had a lot of conversations over these first four months of the year talking about justice and how it's really those people living within the situation that should be the ones defining what justice means for them, as opposed to somebody from the top down saying, "Well, this is what justice looks like." from my perspective. And I feel I'm intrigued by both the name Her Justice and sort of what was what was, what was was the need that needed to be filled or met um, in the communities when Her Justice was formed? Well, I can say that um, we, were, we were formed 28 years ago um, by Catherine Douglas who saw the great need among women living in poverty in New York City for legal help, for information, for access to the system, and were they to choose to engage in the legal system for 
an advocate to help them through an overly complex and, and burdensome system. And the great resources and talents of uh, the major law firms in the city who could provide pro bono assistance in that model. So that need continues to exist. Um, our court system has uh, not become less complicated over the years and it is singularly the, the burden of many women living in poverty to need to engage in that system to get the help they need. So with the need existing as it does, and in some ways certainly exacerbated by COVID, um, and the demand for help as large as ever, we continue to operate in, in, in this way. So talk to us a little bit about what some of the, the foci are of her justice work, because as also part of our conversations have entailed, there is so much work to be done that no one organization can really tackle everything. So what is what are the areas that her justice tackles from this perspective? Um, so we we serve women living in the five boroughs of New York City in, in five um, boroughs, in the five main boroughs in the areas of immigration, matrimonial, family law, um, and uh, and we do that through a kind of unique uh, model where we work with the top learn, uh, law firms in, in New York City to, um, to scout their talent in order to provide free pro bono representation uh, to way more women than Rachel or I or any of our 11, 12 colleagues right now could do on our own. On that, I mean, just the numbers of training and the numbers of women that those who have trained, um, and I'm, I'm not going to remember these numbers specifically, so if you have them top of mind, I, I do remember it was more than 6,900 women and children had been helped in 2020. I want to say it was upwards of 14,000 attorneys who were working on that, but I might be misremembering those, so please correct me if I'm not getting those statistics right. Yeah, I, th I think that's the right number of women and children, but probably... Um, if I'm right, more like 1,400 attorneys that, that we work with. And our staff are, are expert trainers. We work with attorneys who are uh, extensively talented and great lawyers, but often don't have the substantive knowledge in the areas where we work. So our colleagues train, and Naomi herself and I uh, once did train in child support or divorce, uh, and also just sort of them the nuts and bolts of how to go to family court, right? Most of the pro bono attorneys we work with don't know the family court well, and it's a real sort of inside baseball place, uh, which has is a real disadvantage, not only to the attorneys who volunteer their time, but for the many, many clients uh, who we give advice to but are not able to represent, or for those who don't reach an organization like Her Justice, to, to get to know this sort of handshake system without an advocate is quite difficult. So we're expert trainers in uh, the substantive areas of law, the practice, how to do the work. Uh, and, and that's how we're able to, with a relatively small staff, help many, many women and children a year. That's perfect. So for our first conversation in April, Audra Wilson of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law said something that has stuck with me um, and I think uh, inform some of the work that you do as well. And what she said is that it costs money in this country to be poor. And that's not something that we think a lot about 
for those of us who are living above the poverty line or nowhere near the poverty line, depending on, on, on your, your socioeconomic status. And so I'm curious as to do women experience poverty uniquely? And if so, how, how does that look for women living in poverty? I'm really, I'm really glad you, you brought up that, um, that quote. I think that's a, a really important concept that maybe, yeah, those of us who haven't had to experience that don't know is really expensive um, to be living in poverty. Um, I think one just like sort of salient example of that that comes to mind with the work that I do because I, I, I work in uh, with, with consumer debt issues with our, our clients um, and the ways that they overlap with, with family and matrimonial law. A person living in poverty who's depending on a credit card to pay for their bills, they are going to end up in a debt trap where they will never be able to pay off the interest on, on, on that credit card that they use for basic survival. A person who is well enough off to pay off their credit card every month um, is literally making money by using a credit card. If, if you are in this country and started out with the ability to get an education and get a, a job and um, have a source of a steady source of income, then you continue to have sort of privileges heaped on you because of the way that our system works. You literally get money for free um, from your investments, from your, uh, from your credit card points, whatever it is. Whereas if you are a person living in poverty, everything costs money. I once um, had a client who got on a bus in New York City after putting quarters into a faulty ticket machine and the machine gave her a ticket 25 cents short and she got a $100 ticket for getting on the bus with a ticket that said she was 25 cents short. Um, and there was no defense to that ticket under the law in New York. That is how expensive it is um, to be living in poverty in New York. And that's such a great example and uh, a, a very upsetting one. And also, you know, just to add to that, that as, as we said earlier, there are so many uh, forms of relief that people living in poverty need that they can only get by engaging with the civil justice system, right? With the family courts, housing court, where we don't work, but is a related uh, court area, the consumer debt courts, right? The, the costs of engaging in that system where there are rampant delays, where even if you have a relatively simple, let's say a child support case, that could be resolved within two court appearances if both parents were educated and informed about what they needed to bring to court about their income, let's say, um, and the court were not burdened by so much volume that it could pay attention and give the time needed to that family when the family appears the first or second time, rather than one year later, two years later, that case finally getting resolved, each time that you show up for court and maybe you're there for 10 minutes, you probably took a day off of work. And if you have a kind of a, the kind of a job that many of our clients have where you lose wages for a day off of work, there's your cost, right? Of just engaging with the very system you need to engage with to get, in many cases, the financial relief you need, you're losing money. Maybe you had to hire childcare for the day, right? You said, oh, I'm supposed to show up at 9 a.m. 
uh, and you do show up at 9 a.m. for your court appearance and you're not heard by the court until 2.30. Now you've spent a, a day's worth of childcare. So these costs are real and there are many costs to the system itself, but, but un, unfairly, our clients and women like them bear the burden disproportionately. So we talked a little bit about the justice system and the and the pro bono model that her justice has. You all are also doing fairly significant, I would say, advocacy and policy work to address, Rachel, some of what you just described is that there are ways the system could work better. Um, and you know, obviously that would be a benefit not just for the her justice clients, but for uh, you know, a simplified justice system seems as if that would work better for most of us. So I want to dig into some of these bigger policy areas as well that you all are working on. And I'm gonna start with, and I think these are probably somewhat related, um, but divorce and child support. So the the merit the matrimonial side of, of the policy work. Um, and I I think I'm going to be asking this question a lot. How does divorce impact women living in poverty differently than it might someone not living in poverty? Uh, so first of all, I think every court in the country, a divorce is a, a complex legal case and that it involves a lot of different legal issues and you would benefit from legal representation no matter where you are in the country and no matter who it is that's getting divorced. New York happens to have uniquely um, one of the most complicated, actually the most complicated court system in the country. Um, and so to navigate divorce court in particular is uh, incredibly difficult for you if you're pro se. Um, so if you're, if you're looking at a divorce and even if it's a fairly straightforward divorce um, and you're like, I could maybe handle this on my own, you go to court, they hand you a stack of papers. It's literally this thick and tell you, okay, fill all those out in the right order, file those in the right order, uh, you know, serve them in the right order, then file them again in the right order with absolutely zero er errors, and then you will get a divorce in about a year. Um, and that's an insurmountable barrier for someone to do on their own, typically. I mean, people do it <laughs> against all odds, but um, that's really difficult. If you then go and try and find an attorney, you know, sort of a low, lower tier, you know, family matrimonial at at attorney in New York's gonna, in you know, elsewhere in the country as well, is going to cost you $300, $500 an hour just to retain them, might cost you $1,500 just to retain them, maybe more than that. Um, and, and that's, you know, if we've got clients who don't even have that in their bank accounts, typically, um, they're definitely not going to be able to do that. A lot of times people call us who have been separated from their spouse for decades, and the only reason they haven't gotten divorced is because of how prohibitive it is to navigate the system on your own and the inability to hire an attorney. Um, so the experience of just, just getting a divorce decree, even if both of them really want one, that's really hard. But the thing about divorces is they're incredibly high stake. So if you, um, if you have children in a marriage, you know your divorce necessarily implicates custody, it implicates the support for the, our, our clients, child support and spousal support is often their number one, and Rachel will talk about this more, their number one source of income. Um, that is life or death. Like that is rent or no rent. That is food or no food for them. Um, and uh, 
if you know if they if they invested in anything in the marriage then it's also going to involve something like the, usually the family home is is the the biggest asset that uh parties might have um a lot of times and this is kind of a, a gendered issue that um was a huge part of the women's movement but uh still continues to be an issue for our clients is that um a lot of times mothers are asked to stay at home with the kids so they don't have their own retirement savings. So the other big asset that we usually see dividing up in a, in a divorce is uh, the retirement accounts of um, typically the husband, uh, you know, not always, uh, you know, heterosexual um, marriages. However, that's often the dynamic that we see. Um, and that's, you know, the only retirement savings that our client may expect to have in their later years. Um, many of our clients are already in their later years. And, and then, you know, the, the big issue that we were hoping to address with the marital debt project is that, you know, clients who are getting divorced and live in poverty, their big issue is not a ton of complicated assets. It's typically debt. Um, and so there's these, these marriages that contain a lot of debt in them, whether that's a mortgage or whether that is often, you know, a lot of credit card debt that was taken out in order to support the kids. Um, sometimes auto loans, and a lot of times this debt arises out of economic abuse um, by the other person, whether that's identity theft, coercion, or just the overall um, coercive effect of an abusive relationship where they're controlling the family finances. So all of that happens in a divorce. Um, all of that could you know, really benefit from an, an, an attorney and access to justice. I want to unpack a little bit of what you said there and give a little more um, space for to talk about the marital debt program, because I think for a lot of our audience, um, those concepts that you just sort of walked through would be, again, something that they probably have never had to deal with, with you know, your, your spousal partner opening credit cards in your name um, and, and, you know, racking up debt through that or um, uh controlling all of the finances so that you can really only he or she will only give you money on occasion or, you know, on, on some schedule. I'm sure it's not always just, you know, here's, here's money, you know, periodically, but um, could you talk a little bit more about some of the types of um, the things that you were seeing that led, because the marital debt project itself is only about three years old, not quite three years old, if I'm remembering correctly. So 2018. So, so what, what, what was it that you all were seeing that you're like, yes, no, we need like an entirely separate track here to deal with these issues. Yeah. So um, this, this really predates me because I, I came on because, um, you know, Rachel's policy, uh, you know, or sorry, Rachel's practice group was recognizing these issues. Um, so it's my colleague like Rachel who have who've been there much longer than I, who, who were noticing, um, you know, this 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 huge um, hugely unsatisfactory endings to divorces where there's debt that you aren't able to address in a divorce. Um, so my uh, supervisor, Anna Ognabeni, is the one who came up with the idea for the marital debt project um, and who recruited me um, to get a fellowship because she was hoping that we would be able to provide a more holistic approach. A lot of times, you know, it's not just our clients who are living in poverty, their spouses are as well. So there's a limited value that you might get out of a divorce judgment um, in terms of being able to address a lot of liabilities, right? So, you know, maybe you could say that the 
um, spouse is required to indemnify our clients for 50% of the credit card debt accrued during the marriage. But if he doesn't have any assets or um, income that you're going to be able to seize from him in order to pay off those debts, that judgment is going to have a limited value to our client. Um, and so Anna's, you know, seeing all our clients walking away from their divorces, still super economically insecure. Um, and so she thought, well, what if we were also addressing the consumer issues there? Um, something that we, you know, knew, but didn't know until we started the project and started to track this more is that it's not just our divorce clients, because we also, you know, we practice in immigration law and a lot of our family court clients are not married. Most, the vast majority of our clients have debt. And by debt, we mean, you know, debts they haven't paid, like defaulted on. It's rent arrears, utility arrears, credit card debt, because of the high cost of living in New York couldn't possibly be paid with either government benefits or, you know, employment income. Like that's just not feasible. Um, and, and so, you know, we're seeing this across the board in, in the uh, divorces itself. The idea was I would, you know, represent clients in the more complex litigated divorces that in, involved multiple financial issues. Um, and then also see what I could do on the consumer end, whether that meant if the client was being sued in, in civil court by a creditor, also providing defense to her in that case or that whether that just meant um, making sure that we were at minimum looking at those issues, making sure she's referred to financial advising um, and, uh, and, and, and to get a sense of what might steps might take place next, whether that's you know, talking to the credit reporting agencies, um, whether that's thinking about bankruptcy down the line, um, but just having this greater sense that it's, you know, for our clients to walk away with an economic success story, it, it's going to take a, a lot more than just a divorce. And Rachel, I think I want to bring in some of your experience with child support in this area as well. Um, there were some statistics on the Her Justice website that um, I think are, are very uh, illustrative here. So 80% of single parent homes are headed by mothers. And the poverty rate for those families is almost twice that of single parent homes headed by fathers, um, which I was just uh, astonished to, to see. Um, what are some of the challenges within the child support uh, area of, of the, marital, um, the mar marital advocacy work that you're doing as well that from a system standpoint and from the, how the justice system is working, where are the sure. challenges? How's it working? Right. So yeah, the, those statistics are pretty staggering, and uh, those are those are national statistics. Um, and we started to think a lot about child support as an area of policy reform. In part, again, all of our policy work is informed by the work that we do on behalf of our clients. Right? We see need across each individual case over all these years, and then we start to say, well, what are the systemic issues here? So, in child support, it's an area where we focus our client services in part because they are cases that really benefit from lawyers when they're complicated because the system is quite complicated and our pro bono model works well. We can often get 
help pro bono from financial uh, accounting firms, forensic accounting firms, where there's hidden asset, um, where there is a cash business. So these are the cases, not the cases that Naomi was describing where there's poverty on both sides, you know, for both parents, right? These, we, we take the hard cases where we think there is income to be uh, ordered to be paid to a for the sake of a child um, and where there's really need for representation. Um, the fact is on a systemic level that the child support system in New York is quite complex. As Naomi said, New York has the most complex uh, court system. And many of our child support cases, I should clarify, are for non-married parents. So it's not just coming out of our divorce work, but of course, child support is frequently an issue within divorces. If, if you're a non-married parent or a married parent, you can go to family court in New York, but 90% of people in family court uh, have no lawyers on child support cases. And again, these are cases that are about money. They're, they're income-focused cases. And we do a lot of these ourselves, as I said, and yet 90% of cases proceed without lawyers. And so we knew there was a significant invisibility around child support as a gender justice issue, an economic justice issue, a racial justice issue, because most of our clients are black and brown women and people of color. And that is the case with those toiling through family court. So we knew that it would be a benefit if we could take another angle on this problem at a systemic level and really push the envelope on the fact that the courts don't share a lot of data about what happens in these cases. Um, there's sort of, we don't know the nature of these cases, you know, sort of from an, an aggregate standpoint, we don't know what happens in terms of outcome in these cases, again, on a, on a sort of mass level. And so we decided to do a court watch project where we sent about 90 volunteers into the New York City family courts over a two year period and they observed 800 child support cases. And we designed a protocol in collaboration with the Fund for Modern Courts, which has done citizen-based court watch projects before and has expertise in this area. And we asked the observers to report back to us on various um, sort of nature of the case type of things. Look, could they tell how many times this family had been before the judge or the magistrate? Could they tell what the issues were? Were there lawyers? Were there interpreters for those for whom English is not um, a native language? And also things like, what did it feel like to be in this courtroom? If you're standing in the shoes of the litigants, the parents in the courtroom, as you do when you're doing court watching, did people have chance to ask questions? Did they, uh, did the magistrate explain technical terms, right? What was that procedural fairness feeling? What did it look like from, um, again, fairness and understanding uh, perspective, and also how much time were these folks in front of the magistrate? And on average, the uh, appearances we observed lasted 11 minutes, hmm. slightly longer for a trial, slightly less uh, for uh, where there was no other parent showing up. And, you know, we, in many ways, we know these things. Like Naomi, Naomi knows these things from practice. Our colleagues know these things from representing women. But to take another angle on the problem, and while a very small sample set, I mean, there are more than 200,000 child support filings in a normal year in New York State. So 800 is quite a small number. We wanted to 
demonstrate the need for and the benefit of collecting data, of, of surfacing the way that these cases are being handled for the sake of the individuals whose cases they are, whose lives are being determined. I mean, as Naomi said, the work is high stakes. So whose lives are being determined, rent, no rent, food, no food, by the outcome of these cases in many circumstances, but also for the system, right? We know that there are too many cases going through the family courts to have each magistrate in an under-resourced court spend the necessary amount of time, right? But we also know that litigants show up to court without information, without documentation. There's financial literacy, right, that poses a barrier. So there are lots of access points and uh, reform points for the sake of the system and for the sake of the individuals using it that we're very hopeful that this data kicks off a conversation toward. Well, and that was going to be my, my next question with regard to both of these, how, how and to where do you make recommendations as to how the system could function better in this particular instance? Um, and, and you know, what does that look like? So, so as you're collecting this data, what, what comes next? What do you do with it next? Well, on the child support work, one of the things that we want to explore is um, the idea that is not specific only to child support, I would say as a civil justice reform issue, but that certainly has application here, which is that if you are poor or living in poverty or low income, you rarely have a menu of options for how you engage with the civil justice system, right? If you can afford an attorney, you and your attorney sit down at a table, hammer out an agreement, whether it's on custody, child support, divorce, and then you can largely avoid the many months long or years long process that we're talking about many of our clients go through in family court or divorce court and Supreme Court. Um, to get help, right? You, you can shortcut that burden, essentially. You, you can lift it off yourself and put it somewhere else. You can't do that if you can't afford an attorney. Um, and there, you know, the legal services field is um, incredibly impactful and her justice included, but we can't serve all the demand out there. So one of the things we're really interested in is what does a menu of options look like for some of the issues that we focus on. And we're not the only folks thinking about this, but on the child support issue, is there a way to handle simple cases in a simple way? Does, does the one sort of courthouse door fits all solution really work? And again, from a system perspective, as much as for the individual. So one of the things we're researching is what could an alternative look like for those who really don't have a disputed child support case or child support issue between them. Um, I also, out of our court watch report comes some recommendations about simplification of the process sort of at the beginning, right? So I, I alluded to folks coming to court without information. Uh, people don't understand their rights. I mean, our organization is dedicated to outreach in communities to inform people about their rights, but that is a lot of um, work and there's a lot of need out there. And so we, we intend to do more. At the same time, the information that folks are presented with before they even get to court, there's a, something called a financial disclosure affidavit that's used in a, in a um, child support case, similar to something that's used in a divorce case. 
many, many people do not understand this page's long form, right? So it doesn't make a lot of sense that that's the bit of information that you're giving to people to equip them to participate, you know, accountably in the system themselves, right? To come with the information so that it doesn't get postponed for lack of documentation. So I think these kinds of things are um, issues that we want to move forward with in terms of court reform um, and working with our partners in the courts and um, thinking um, bigger also about sort of a fix or a solution that comes from elsewhere, whether it's from the legislature, whether it's from the administrative agencies, I mean, really thinking big picture about holistic reform um, that we hope is, again, kicked off by this work that we did. That sounds great. Yes. As anybody who's ever struggled through reading and the instructions for basically any form you've needed to fill out, fill out for a state or a federal government, um, you sometimes wonder if you no longer speak English in terms of reading those. And for those of your clients who actually English is not their first language, I can only imagine that extra level of challenge um, to, to navigate that. Um, one of the other main policy areas, and Rachel, you alluded to this earlier as well, and actually I think Naomi, you did too, is the immigration side of things and that a number of your um, clients are also trying to navigate um, immigration services. Uh, and so I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, what does, so for your clients, and actually I'm gonna start with a very specific conversation uh, thing because it's a recent development in New York State. So um, as part of the budget that was recently passed, there have been about $2.1 billion worth of funds that have been allocated as a one-time payment to undocumented immigrant workers. Um, and there, this has kicked off a lot of discussions as to how does this how does this function from a process standpoint, but also why is this necessary? And so I have to imagine that a number of your clients would be impacted by something like this. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, on this, this allocation, um, what, what need is it filling um, and, and go from there. Sure, I can start Naomi and then if you have something to add, please do. I mean, th this is hugely important for New Yorkers who are undocumented. And as you say, many of our clients are undocumented. We have a very robust immigration practice. Our immigration work focuses on uh, clients who have survived gender-based violence. Um, and the economic justice issues for our clients are significant, right? If they don't have status, then they may not have work authorization. They may not have legal work permission to, to legal permission to work. Um, and as with many of our clients, they're single mothers raising families. So the economic issues that we've talked about um, in child support and divorce, right, cross cut and affect our immigrant clients significantly. So what we've seen over the last several years is that many of our immigrant clients haven't been in, uh, eligible for some of the stimulus payments that have been made. Um, and at the same time have been frontline workers, essential workers, the ones hardest hit by the effects of the pandemic. Single parents without childcare, without school to send their children to. So hardest hit with no safety net at a time that they need it most. Um, I should also say to the point earlier about family courts where um, many of our immigrant clients do file for child support or other financial relief, the family courts have in New York City have essentially been closed during the pandemic for this kind of need. So without any of that support, this kind of 
uh, move from the state is incredibly significant. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other things like uh, extending health care coverage to all, all New Yorkers who need it that we've been uh, behind coming out of the need of our, our immigrant clients. Got it. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the immigration work that, that, that Her Justice um, does for your clients, because I think some of these, again, are, are going to be some new concepts for us. So the U visas and the work permits. Um, in terms of, I, I guess, what what is the work what is the workaround for that? In terms of, uh, I think there is a misperception that if you are in this country without document without the proper documentation, that you are not contributing to to the society. And I think um, part of this conversation around U visas and the work permits probably is directly addressing that. So I'd, I'd love to start there. Sure, Naomi, do you wanna take it or you want me to start? No, go for it, go for it. So uh, just, to, just to start at um, fundamentals, uh, U visas are, are um, their applications for status that folks can file uh, who are victims of crime. That set of crimes under the law includes um, acts of intimate partner violence and gender-based violence. So the U visas that we file on behalf of clients are tied to those acts um, against them. So uh, along the pathway to status uh, to get a U visa, uh, applicants are entitled to legal work authorization. In the last four or five years, the timeline to obtain work authorization, uh, well, and ultimately to obtain a U visa has lengthened dramatically. And so, whereas it used to take about one year for uh, immigrant applicants for U visas to get a work permit, it now takes sometimes up to five years. So we have been, um, our amazing immigration team, uh, and I am not an immigration um, expert myself, although I uh, do the policy work with our team, but our amazing team of immigration lawyers uh, has met the unbelievable demand for help from really clients who are really have been in crisis over these last several years with the delays that are just um, unjust, <laughs> to, to, to put it lightly. So. Um, you know, our clients are providers for their families. They always have been, and they continue to be. Um, and despite the delays in systems, they continue to provide. So our clients are workers. They're home health workers. They're domestic workers. They're um, work in retail, work in stores, right? Grocery stores. So they've continued to do the work that they need to do to survive. Um, but with the burden of this systemic uh, delay, just uh, to make matters incredibly worse. Um, so we have, uh, I think we sit in a unique position doing the policy work we do because we work as an organization with individuals and because we also work on system change. So one of the things we've done on this issue which we continue to do, especially given the impact of COVID and the pandemic on our clients, uh, especially our immigrant clients, uh, is to 
tell their stories in a way to, to advocate for change. So we did a, a project a few years ago where we uh, in-depth interviewed 20 of our immigrant clients about the impact of waiting for work authorization on their lives. How did it affect their um, housing stability? How did it affect their safety, right? These are all women who have uh, survived and fled from intimate partner violence. So what did it look like for their safety for them to be waiting for legal permission to work from the government? What did it look like for their working conditions? As I said, these women are providers for their families. Were their working conditions uh, changed when they did get work authorization? Did they get a different job? Were their wages increased? So all of these kinds of um, uh, real life, right? What, what is the real life impact of policy on people? And so we um, uh, sort of analyzed what we learned from our clients and uh, in some ways confirmed what we knew and in a lot of ways surprised us, which is the, I mean, in my experience, amazing thing about doing policy work with individuals in, uh, impacted by policy uh, is to learn new things. So we uh, have used that uh, that set of information to talk with partners at the national level about federal immigration reform uh, and continue to think about ways, as I said, to unearth the story from the last year, which might be more of the same, but might look different for our clients and, uh, and what we need to be considering uh, and pushing policymakers to consider going forward. So a related question, I think, um, because I feel as if there is a general sentiment that if you are an undocumented immigrant, you should not receive any access or support um, by the system. And so I'm curious as to what do you say to people who have that, who have that mindset? How, how, and I'm not sure if, you know, there's the ability to convince them. It probably takes many conversations, but as a, as a, as a shorthand or as a, as a, as some talking points, um, how do we start addressing that and start changing that mindset? Um, I think Rachel already, you know, mentioned this multiple times about how those clients are our essential workers. None of us would be here or doing as well coming out of a pandemic if it weren't for our immigrant population in the United States. Obviously, none of us would would be here if our ancestors hadn't immigrated here at all. Um, so, you know, there's just that perspective of like, who who thinks that they've earned a place, you know, at the table? Who thinks they've earned, um, you know, their right to live in in comfort? And um, what what makes you more worthy than another person? And that I mean, one really, uh, you know, obvious example is that our clients are are mostly paying taxes. You know, that's one one thing that our our immigration attorneys, you know, always you know are advising clients to do. You get you know. Um, an ITIN, even if you don't have a social security number and you begin paying taxes. Um, uh, our, our clients are, are you know, contributing in, in a lot of ways. The sort of disturbing thing is not only do we deny our clients any, you know, not our clients, our immigrant populations, basic human rights like healthcare and um, benefits, our system still sees them as profitable, even though they don't see them as, you know, human. So I am seeing clients who've developed a credit history, um, maybe a negative one with an ITIN because financial institutions see them as profitable and they prey on them. 
um, predatory lenders see them as profitable and prey on them. Um, and obviously our entire system sees them as profitable and, and preys on their on their labor. So, um, you know, that that's my like a little bit of a soapbox. I don't know if Rachel, you would have something a little more concise to say to our naysayers. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Well said. Okay, perfect. Um, Rachel, you had mentioned um, one for as part of the U visas, the intimate partner violence um, aspect of that. And my uh, understanding from doing my research for, for this conversation was that the legal system has sort of one definition of intimate partner violence and her justice thinks it perhaps should be a little bit broader than, than that. So I'd love to start with what, what is IPV um, currently defined as and then how would her justice modify that definition? So... I, you know, it, it's interesting when, when, when we talk about the policy work that we do, there are many instances where the law is strong. I mean, New York has progressive, strong laws in the human rights realm, um, in, in the family law realm. The, there are many instances where that's not the fix. It's the implementation, the application of the law. And I think in many ways our, uh, our state and local definitions of intimate partner violence are strong, right? They account for not just the physical harm that one partner um, wields on another, but the psychological impact of that harm. Where we have seen the need for pushing for change is around the economic abuse piece that we see um, in many of our clients' lives, right? So that, and by that I mean, and Naomi might even have a more um, eloquent definition of this at her fingertips. But what, what I would say for that is um, that economic abuse, which is uh, almost always, I think statistics show a part of intimate partner violence, looks like uh, coercion, uh, isolation around the finances in the couple. And that, um, I mean, you heard Naomi talk about the way that our clients are strapped with debt coming out of uh, relationships. There are um, identity theft issues and others that flow frequently that take years to recover, right? So I think recovery in my mind, you know, I have sort of a prevention mindset sometimes, but on the back end of that sort of treatment and recovery, I think the laws are good, right? We see you recover from the physical effects. Uh, the psychological effects, we, we are maybe even doing better than we once did there. But in terms of what, are, what does it look like to pick up the pieces of economic abuse that almost all survivors have experienced, we see the need um, for the laws to get stronger around that so that uh, recovery works. I mean, just one example of that is several years ago, we were involved uh, in an effort with other advocates to have the city of New York pass a paid safe leave um, bill. And that bill, which is somewhat similar to a paid sick leave bill, right? So it's, it's, it's a paid time off of work. Uh, and the, the paid safe leave bill was for survivors of intimate partner violence to take paid time off of work so that they could deal with the consequences of, of, of intimate partner violence, right? Recognizing that that work and IPV are connected, right? I said before people go to court, miss work. So for those who are domestic violence survivors or IPV survivors um, who need to go 
seek medical care, mental health care, legal services. As a result of that abuse, um, the law adapted. And so New York City a few years ago passed such a law. So those are the areas um, that I think we're doing a lot of work. And then I think also, and I don't know if Naomi will have something to say on this as someone as a lawyer in the courts, but in lawyering, we do a lot of work to push this forward, right? So not even just law change, but even sometimes where there are strong laws, our lawyers push forward for change um, in individual cases. Mm -hmm. um, I just like, as an aside, just want to say for anyone who's watching is like, oh gosh, I wish I could someday do policy work like Rachel Bronstein. I, um, you mentioning that paid uh, leave act, I, I literally watched Rachel testify to the New York City Council way back when I was a law student um, and now I get to work with her. And so I'm super thrilled uh, for that honor. <laughs> um, just been doing the work uh, and making a big difference in clients' lives. Um, absolutely. I think um, you touched on economic abuse. Uh, our current laws don't really define that, you know, and it, it's, uh, it's, a huge, it's a huge gap that we're trying to address um, and make that, you know, that's been known for a long time in the research on domestic violence, that the number one reason that uh, people are unable to leave a violent situation is economic reasons. And at the same time, those economic reasons are caused by the abuse. Um, and that can look like, you know, someone maybe withholding, you know, your income from you, giving you an allowance to live off of, uh, showing up at your workplace and getting you fired. Like these are all things that we hear about all of the time that you may not think of as forms of abuse, um, but, but they are. And, and the reason our clients can't leave, especially in New York, is where on earth are you going to find the rent to pay if you're in that kind of a situation? So, um, you know, what, what we're seeing and, and, and to Rachel's point about like, you know, we're going into court also trying to push that different definition, you know, to a certain extent, we've got, you've got certain definitions, like we have um, identity theft was recently relatively, okay, not that recent, but relatively recently in the like vast history of New York law. Um, added to the Family Court Act as a family offense. So that would be, you know, alongside things like assault and harassment. Uh, and it's underused because, you know, as Rachel's also said, the vast majority, you know, over 90% of litigants in family court are unrepresented. You know, how would they know that the Family Court Act includes something like identity theft and, and think that you might be able to get something like restitution if you were to go and, and bring a family offense petition? So there's, there's you know, um, last I checked, uh, no case law on, on identity theft um, as a family offense. Um, it's also obviously a crime in the state of New York. And, and so, you know, being able to try and, and identify those cases and litigate them. Um, and, and obviously when you are doing direct services, you are, you know, you know serving the client's needs and, and not necessarily pushing a, a political agenda or like trying to do impact litigation um, but to the extent that you are educating judges, maybe a little bit, um, and trying to educate the system as a whole, if you, if you go to the police and you say someone stole my identity, I guarantee you they won't give you a police report, even though it's on the books as a crime. We see it again and again and again um, with the NYPD, and I know advocates across the country have the same issue with law enforcement. The reason that's important is because the credit reporting agencies aren't going to take it off your credit report unless you show them a police report. 
Um, it, it also matters in, you know, the family offense cases as well. So I've got a client who, you know, the NYPD refuses to give her um, a police report when her husband steals her identity. Uh, so then we go to family court um, and I tell the judge that this is what happened. The judge says, that sounds like a criminal issue. Get it out of my court. Literally true story. Um, and, and, and so these are, you know, multiple areas of the justice system from the criminal to the family court that are not identifying what abuse looks like and giving people meaningful relief. We're not even talking about, you know, being punitive here. It's more about like, can we get this person relief from what's on her credit report, relief from, you know, what the money she needs to recover from, from this situation. Um, and so that, that's, that's what we're in, in safety, obviously, when you're, you're filing a family offense petition, you're looking for that to not happen to you again. Um, and so that's, that's what we'd like to see a little bit more of a, of a definition that encompasses more of the reality of what our clients go through so that they can seek those types of relief, whether it's safety or economic relief. So we have a couple of questions from our audience that I'll ask now um, before we get to the lightning round. So um, the first question is from Helena and she's asking, do you feel a need to actively rebuild trust in the immigrant community based on fears of deportation? How has some of, some of the conversations and some of these challenges with the system played out with that? I'll say that it's a great question and one we thought a lot about after the federal election in 2016, where we saw that folks were reaching out for help less. And we thought, well, we're already a trusted player to many of our clients and in their communities. Certainly don't serve all the communities that need help. What can we do about that? So we really ramped up our outreach work to go to where the need was. And that continues to be work that we focus on. Um, we, we know that we're, uh, we're lawyers, uh, many of us, and we know that folks don't always know that they have a problem that the law can address. And even if they do know that the law might address their problem, they might not wanna come forward. So we really thought a lot about that in terms of meeting people where they are instead of expecting and waiting for that need to come to us. And then the second question we have is, are you seeing support from um, some adjacent bureaus? So they specifically mentioned the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You mentioned um, some of the, Naomi, some of the conversations you have, it's almost like you're going in circles. You know, this is not, you need the documentation from here, but they are like, no, it's fine. And so when you show up at the court, so are you seeing support from adjacent bureaus or adjacent organizations that you need, or are there some that maybe need a little bit of a shot in the arm or, or some convincing that they should get involved? No, I, you know, obviously certain administrations are more likely than others to be moved by these stories and moved to action. Um, I'm, you know, hope, I, and obviously the CFPB was, you know, created for consumers. Um, so definitely you see a lot of like really helpful, um, like public notices coming out of the CFPB. So we definitely see them as an ally. I think one thing that, you know, our pie in the sky, the coalitions um, that I get to be involved in would like to see is, you know, no longer clients, no longer needing a, a law enforcement report. One effort to um, to avoid having clients, and obviously, 
the vast majority of the folks that we work with, I shouldn't say obviously, uh, but the vast majority of the, the folks that we work with are people of color, um, including black and, and brown folks who going to the, the police, it's a different story for them than for, for many of um, for many of us who are, who are brought up to believe that the police protect us, like that's a very different story. Um, and a lot of times for uh, victims of, of violence, going to the police means you get re-victimized um, because of their response um, to allegations of, of gender-based violence. Um, and so, that, you know, there's a lot, a lot of complications there. So one agency um, that came up with a, a great uh hopefully great that we're, you know, still trying to, to, to use in a lot of different ways. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, you can make a, a report of identity theft to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and that's, you know, a sworn statement. Uh, so I, I always have clients do that um, and try and use that in advocacy. So it's more of a push to the credit reporting agencies to be more responsive to that as well. Um, but yeah, definitely some partnership there. And then on the issue that Rachel kind of touched on on the stimulus check, um, stolen, Stimulus checks are, are, are not going to a lot, of, you know, didn't go to a lot of our immigrant clients. Um, for a lot of our clients who would have been entitled to this to the stimulus payments, they um, did not get them because their abusers uh, filed for taxes and, and received the stimulus themselves, and of course withheld them um, from our clients. So that's been a big issue across the board. And I, you know, I think we're we're talking about who, you know, who who would be helpful in that, like what agencies would be helpful in that. Um, that sort of issue, obviously talking, you know, what is it, what role could the IRS play in, in helping survivors of domestic violence and issues that um, involve taxes? And there's, there's certain things in law that um, do address, uh, you know, intimate partner violence, like innocent spouse relief. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's conversations to be had there as well. Okay. All right. The lightning round. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? And Rachel, we'll start with you. I hope to see that um, the family court system in New York thinks differently about how people access it and uh, how it can be less of a burden in their lives. Okay, Naomi. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I love that. I would second that. Um, I, you know, I would love to see people feeling safer and, uh, you know, more welcomed in, in our communities. Okay. And then Naomi, what gives you hope that progress will be made? Um, I think working, uh, working with, with communities, we're doing coalition work and, and seeing that the political energy um, of many people who are identifying the same issues um, and always, you know, our, our, our clients, um, you know, continuing to demand what what what's owed to them. Okay, Rachel. I, you know, ever the optimist that um, even systems want to do better. Uh, I I think that you know, sort of a phoenix out of the ashes. That unfort out of this terrible, unfortunate crisis, there is opportunity for change, and it's. And it's, and it's happening. There's discussion happening about change. And so that in itself gives me hope that something good will come out of it. Okay. And Rachel, who else is doing good work to make progress? So, I mean, lately I'm following a lot of the organizations that are talking about 
um, moms and women and the need for childcare and women working in the care economy in particular. So um, I, we, we recently, as an organization, talked to the National Women's Law Center um, and there are folks in New York City, whose name I'm forgetting, who are doing really interesting stuff around that. But I'm really hopeful that we can have some synergies with that movement because I think we're talking about the same moms and same women who are struggling uh, in poverty and need the same kinds of policy reform. Okay, and Naomi? Um, I'm, I'm excited to see, uh, you know, national groups um, or groups in other states who are doing a lot of the same work that we do. Um, like for instance, there are other um, advocates who are specifically looking at the intersection of domestic violence and consumer debt. And so I have a lot to learn from like lawyers in Texas and Maine, um, for instance. And so I'm excited to see that, that work that's developing and, and get to learn from them. Okay. And then the final lightning round question is, how can we as an audience better educate ourselves on some of these issues? So what are some books or articles we should be reading, podcasts, people who are doing the thinking part of this that we should be tuning into? Naomi, I'm going to start with you on that one. Thanks. I mean, I obviously, I, I have to keep educating myself. I have a really long reading list that I haven't gotten through. Um, I'm excited for the release uh, this summer of a um, a, a book, um, one of the co-authors of which is Angela Davis on abolition feminism now, um, uh, just read Women, Race, and Class um, for the first time and, you know, probably should have read that a long time ago to get, you know, a sense of where our history has brought us and, you know, kind of unlearn the history we already know um, and uh, just trying to prioritize um, reading uh, a lot of books by Black women um, I, I mentioned Brian Stevenson earlier, if you haven't read Just Mercy, um, that's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. Um, and then if you like fiction, I love fiction. Um, one book that I read recently that I felt like really spoke to kind of the experiences that a lot of our clients go through and the kind of intersecting issues and dynamics of immigration and family um, and abuse particularly in New York City, there's this book called Dominicana by Angie Cruz um, that was just like delightfully written. Um, and it's uh, kind of loosely based on the author's mother moving from the, the Dominican Republic to New York. Okay, and Rachel? I hope, Naomi, that you will email me those suggestions later <laughs> because they're so great. I um, I email, all, email all of us, we'll post it too. So beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful, because I wanted to write it down while she was talking. Um, agree on the lifelong learning, trying to listen to so many things. Um, we recently had the opportunity to talk to the folks at Pod Save the People who are doing some really interesting civil rights analysis. Um, and a book I read ages ago when I was working with her justice in our then Bronx office, which always stuck with me and is, I thought, an amazing way to learn about these issues is called Random Family by Adrienne Nicola Blanc. And that, she, she's a journalist who embeds herself in a community of, of, of folks who are some chosen family, some actual family. Uh, I, I thought it was uh, a stunning portrayal of, um, I'm sure many issues that persist and that was written probably 20 years ago, but I would recommend it. Okay, great. Rachel and Naomi, thank you so much for joining us and challenging us and educating us. And we know these conversations never really end. So um, we'll keep doing the work and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. thank you so much for having us. 
You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.